0: Meet in the skies, going where no one dies, heavenward bound. I just can't hit those high notes, but but God loves me anyway. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Oh man. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24 this morning. Matthew chapter 24. We're going to have a temporary reprieve and a detour from, from our Apprentice series that we began in January. And that's given all of the stuff that is going on in the world right now. It, it raises a lot of questions about the end times as it is. And I find it very important to look at this this morning. Matthew chapter 24, starting in, in verse 1. There it says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came in order to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all of these things? Truly I say to you that not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. And of course, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is a section of scripture where Jesus speaks. And and now historically speaking, we know that, that half of what he's speaking about is the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy. And yet the other half, especially in Matthew chapter 25, he's speaking about his return at the end of the age. And so the, the apostles are, are asking him about this. And yet anybody who has been in the church for any amount of time knows that, as, that, that how still to this day the religious world is still asking questions like this. What will be um, a sign of his coming and so forth? And it's rather likely that at just about any time of any given day, if you're listening to a religious radio station or perhaps even on television, you will hear one, if not all, of the following phrases. The end times. Um, The kingdom being restored to Israel. A thousand year reign. And the rapture. It seems like for a very long time, the focus of religious networking, of Christian bookstores, and what has been very, very active and, and, and extremely predominant in capturing the evangelical imagination are all of these questions that are asked about thousand-year reigns and about rapture and about the end times. But not that long ago, you might even remember how there had been a series of novels called Left Behind, which is about a theory called The Rapture. And the Left Behind series very quickly became a billion-dollar institution. There was a lot of curiosity then, as there is now. Not that long ago, I was having a conversation with with a man who lives here in Westchester, who's not a member of this church. And I began speaking about the grace of God and about how cool it is that, that God, how it's in his plan, how we are the ones who are to bring glimpses of him to this world. And yet as I am, am explaining all of this, he's just looking at me, kind of rolling his eyes a little bit, because all he wanted to, to discuss was, was just simply speculation and to debate abstract end-time conspiracies, where I'm sure that you also have met a lot of people in, in the religious world where, where all they ever want to even speak about is end-time forecasting they're much more interested in in all of this end-time stuff than actually living the Christian life itself. A lot of people are very curious about this. But I would say especially that that whenever there is any kind of tragedy or calamity in the world, these kind of conversations really start to gain a momentum where, okay, we, we have a pandemic in the world right now. We had a tornado in Tennessee. Not that long ago, we had earthquakes And a lot of people say that that a rapture is just about to occur because of these events in the world. Many years ago, I remember seeing a popular bumper sticker on a lot of cars which said that, that in case of rapture, this car will be abandoned. And so, I mean, what does that, I mean, what in the world does that mean? Where does the theory of the rapture come from? Is this something that we can read about in the Word of God, or has it come from, from another place, perhaps? What does the theory of the rapture even claim and teach? What actually will happen when Jesus returns to this world, in the end time, as it is commonly referred to? And so what I want to do this morning is just exactly that. I want to establish what the scriptures say about what will transpire when Jesus does actually make his return. Now, I mentioned a word a moment ago of the rapture, but there is another word, premillennialism. And what premillennialism and the rapture, what what a lot of people might be surprised in learning is that these are actually relatively recent doctrines and teachings. They began not that long ago. And so there was a man whose name was John Darby living in England in the 1820s who began instructing other people about a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. And to make a very long story short, in the 1900s, there, there had been a Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible which, which had also printed his on what he believed would, would actually transpire in this theory called the rapture. And millions of people latched on to it. I would like to give us a very brief understanding of those two words I have just mentioned. Now now that word pre obviously means before. And millennial means thousand years and before one thousand years. In the book of Revelation it speaks very briefly about about one thousand years there. But what is commonly ignored and even misunderstood oftentimes is that In books like Revelation, it uses extremely symbolic language that is not necessarily always to be taken in a literal sense, but but a lot of people do read it in that way. Now that word rapture, though, we also need to define what that word rapture really means. Now there is in one sense where I would say that there absolutely is a rapture. And what I mean by that is if we look at the very meaning of that word rapture in our English language, it means intense joy and elation with regard to something. And so in one sense, as Jesus returns, yes, we will feel rapture in our hearts at least. I mean, it's even in our hymn books and we don't even realize it. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest that that lies for us just beyond the river. And so in that sense, yes, we will feel intense happiness and elation when Jesus returns. But 99 times out of 100 when we hear that word rapture, that is referring to to a completely foreign matter than, than simply feeling happiness in our hearts. In fact, at one point I discovered that there were more than 165 Variations of the rapture. Each one is, is slightly different from the other. But what I want to, to accomplish this morning is just to give, give um, a most common concise theory in a nutshell of what the rapture is according to, to a lot of people. So as we begin, really the first thing that the rapture teaches is that one day Jesus will return. But here's the bombshell, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be an invisible return as Jesus comes. And then once that transpires, all of his faithful ones will, will just vanish in the thin air. Whoa, Whoa. I, feel I feel funny. funny. What the? Alright, so, so it teaches that, that a lot of people are just going to just poof magically and they're gone. And in fact, that is how how Left Behind begins, where it begins in a plane. And Christians vanish in this plane. One of them, by the way, is the pilot. And there is just all of this chaos, planes crashing in the shopping malls, cars crashing in the restaurants left and right. It is just complete pandemonium on the face of the earth. So anyway, once all of that has happened, then what is going to transpire according to the rapture is all of those who do not vanish as Jesus returns are going to be left behind, which is where a title comes from there. They will be left behind on earth, where, as I said, pandemonium is going to unfold. And then last of all, here's where, where um, it really gets interesting. At the end of those seven years of waiting, Jesus then is going to return again for a second time with his, his saints. Jesus then goes into Jerusalem, where he will actually set up a literal earthly kingdom. He will physically rebuild Solomon's temple, and then he will literally reign as an earthly king on David's throne for a thousand years. What is wrong with the picture we we have been given here? It's that if we read Scripture very, very carefully, and especially in its context, we will find this is not at all a picture that we find of the return of Christ Jesus. In fact, most people might even be amazed in discovering that that word rapture never once appears in the Bible. That you can read all the way from from there in Genesis all the way then into the book of Revelation and not once will that word rapture make an appearance in our Bibles. And so I would say that that a first problem with, with believing the rapture is that the kingdom of God was already established long, long ago. Now, in the premillennial theory, it is revolving and it is predicated on Jesus' very purpose in returning to earth is to have an earthly kingdom set up on, in this world. And I know a lot of people might respond to this in the way that, that I once had responded to this. I'm sure that there, there, there might even be some sitting here this morning who are listening to all of this thinking, I mean, well, okay, I mean, so What? Why do we need a message about what the rapture claims and what scripture says? I mean, it's not a salvation issue, so so why should we even look at this? Here is why this is so extremely important for us to understand. Is that to believe in the theory of the rapture is also to agree that Jesus was defeated by his enemies and that Jesus failed to establish his kingdom 2,000 years ago. And you also agree that the church is a flimsy plan B that Jesus had been strong-armed into creating when us people had defeated his original plan of a kingdom on the face of this earth. And yet, what do the scriptures say, though? What we find predominantly over and over emphatically in scripture is that the kingdom has already long since been established. And over two thousand years ago, at that, because his his church is his kingdom, and the kingdom is his church. We know that on there, in Acts chapter two, how his church had been established on that great day at Pentecost, after he had risen from the dead. And this is a theme that we find all throughout Scripture. Where, where, for instance, Mark chapter nine, before he had gone to the cross, notice. How Jesus speaks to his disciples there. What he says is, truly I say to you, there, there are some of those who are standing here right now who will not taste death. Notice, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with great power. What is Jesus referring to here? Clearly he is referring to what transpires in Acts chapter 2 as more than 3,000 people hear, hear his gospel for the very first time and they are baptized in the Christ, as it says, being added to his church. This is what he is referring to here. The kingdom of God after it has come with great power. And notice how also this is something clearly that, that is occurring in that particular generation. This is not futuristic here. Because if it is futuristic, then we had better have some very, very old people walking around. Over 2,000 years old. Simon Peter among them, right? And so clearly this, this was something that, that happened 2,000 years ago. Or we could hear what the Apostle Paul says to the church of Colossae. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, where, where again it says, "...for he rescued us from the domain of darkness." and transferred us, notice, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now, in one sense, his kingdom is here in us, as we we live and as we roam this earth, as far as his influence goes. But in a literal sense, in a visible, physical sense of where exactly his kingdom is, Scripture also makes it very clear that that his kingdom is not of this earth. John chapter 18, and verse 36, Jesus answers Pilate, notice, very carefully here. He says, my kingdom is not, notice, not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would, would also be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, he says it again, a second time, my kingdom is not of this realm. And so it begs another question, and that is, who are we to agree with here? Now, one thing that I have discovered for absolutely sure in this world is that whenever there is a discrepancy between what what us people claim and what Jesus clearly said, it's generally in our best interest to go with what Jesus said. And, you know, we will never understand everything about his second coming. I mean, we will never understand everything or ever learn everything that there is to, to learn. But in terms of what exactly his kingdom is, and when that kingdom had been established, I mean, it's so so clear in the scriptures that, that even a child can understand this. And I think our, our struggle so often in our relationship with, with God's word is, is that we just make this so much harder than, than it needs to be. Our struggle is we just make this so complex needlessly when it's not quite as complex as we would imagine. Well, another issue with the rapture is that it claims multiple returns of Jesus. But in Scripture, what we find is that there will be one very loud and visible return. Now, the most common scriptures that, that are cited in a defense of the rapture One is in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, which says that, that then we who are alive and remain, notice, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And a lot of people say, well, it says right here, this is clearly in reference to a rapture because it says that where it speaks about people being caught up together with them in the clouds, right? And yet, when we look at what the context of this whole chapter is, though, one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul is, is writing them in the first place is to comfort grieving Christians who are, who are mourning the loss of, of many saints. And in fact, what it says just before that verse is, notice, it says, "...the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God." Notice. It says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so there is nothing invisible about how Jesus' return is depicted here. There's nothing quiet about this particular return of Jesus. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Where it's one very loud and one very visible return of Jesus. And yet, I would say that the main question that that I hear all the time happens to be here in our text in Matthew chapter 24. A lot of people say, well, what about Matthew chapter 24? It says, Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken. And the other will be left. And so a lot of people say, I mean, clearly, there, there is no way around this. this. This is clearly referring to the rapture here. One's going to be taken, one's going to be left, one's going to be taken, one is going to be left. And yet the problem with this interpretation, though, is again, we have to go to the context. Is What he says just before he gets there is, he says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels, notice, with a great trumpet. Noisy stuff here. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds. And so again, what we find here is that this is not invisible. This is not not quiet. But rather, this is one very loud and visible return. So I believe what Jesus is saying here is that some will be ready when when he comes. Others will not be ready. And so, in the theory of the rapture, it it claims and it teaches multiple returns of Jesus. And yet, as we open up God's word, though, what we find is is not two, not three or four returns of Jesus, but just simply one return. John 6.40, "For, For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. Notice this part. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Acts chapter 17, Peter, who is speaking about now how the Gentiles have come to faith. And he also says, God is now declaring to men that, that all people everywhere should repent. Notice again, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed. Christ Jesus, obviously, in a singular sense, not not in a plural sense. And so what we find again and again in Scripture is that that the return of Christ is not going to be invisible. It's not going to be a matter of Jesus sneaking all of these Christians off of the face of the earth, where there's empty airplane seats and nobody even knew that, that he was even here to begin with. But rather, when he comes, the whole universe... And every human being who has ever roamed this this planet is going to know that King Jesus has come. Make no mistake about that. And yet, what I find most incredible, though, about the the rapture is that Jesus in Scripture had been opposed to the very idea of a rapture. In our Bibles, I like to go to. There um, in the Gospel of John chapter 17. John chapter 17, of course, is is where Jesus prays for his apostles. And yet a beautiful thing also happens there where where once he has prayed for his apostles, then he starts praying for for Jerry Davis and for David Creek and for Maisie and for all of those who one day are going to have a a faith in him. John chapter 17, i like to start there in the 14th verse. Where Jesus begins speaking about his apostles. And he says that, verse 14, that "That I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Notice verse 15 very, very slowly though. Where he says that I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but rather to keep them from the evil one. Verse 20 is where you and I are going to come into play where it says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone but also for all of those who believe in me through, Jesus says, the apostolic word. And so, very clearly, Jesus wants his apostles in this world, as as his kingdom, his church, very soon is going to be established on the day of Pentecost. But just as much, I believe Jesus also wants his church of the world of today in the world. As I said a moment ago, we are are his chosen ones who bring glimpses of him and of his heaven down to a broken world. The church is not a flimsy plan B, but, but rather, as his church, we were his plan even before a world had existed. As he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth, you are the ones who give flavor to this world, but then also what he says is, you are the light of the world. He says that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither does anybody light a lamp and conceal it underneath a bowl, but rather he displays it so that it gives light to everyone in the house. My question is, if there really were a rapture, why would Jesus do that with his church? When he has said, you are the light of the world, and so go and shine until I return. And so as we weigh all of this here together this morning, here is what actually matters. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus promises his apostles that a lot of hard times are going to soon be, be arriving in their lives. There's going to be many Christ imposters claiming, I am, I am Jesus, I, I am a Messiah. There's going to be a lot of false teachers running around. There's going to be calamities, wars, rumors of wars, Jesus says. All kinds of calamities upon the face of the earth in a form of earthquakes and famines. And yet here is what is important to Jesus. Not that there are going to be calamities in the world, but rather here's what he says in verse 6. He says that you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. But notice what he says. See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place, Jesus says. And yet, that is not yet the end. Jesus says. And I just wonder how many earthquakes have been in the world in the last couple hundred years. And ever since a theory of the rapture came along, I can guarantee you every single earthquake that has come—hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of earthquakes—every time this is the sign, Jesus is going to come back. Maybe I'm going a week or two. Jesus says, do not be frightened. Do not speculate about when the end is going to be. Let me worry about that, in other words. Also, what he says in verse 13 is very important also, but the one who endures, notice, until the very end, is the one who will be saved. And so what we have seen this morning is that the community of faith, going back all the way to the Apostles, Has always had a fascination about the end of the world and trying to piece together all of the clues and the signs about when exactly it's going to be, and to predict it. And yet I find it so interesting, though, in our text, Matthew 24 and verse 4, that that it's Jesus is actually asked about all of these matters. Jesus answer, or rather, answers his apostles' curiosities. And he cautions them not to be led astray or to be deceived. I see a lot of people who have been been led astray and deceived by things like the rapture. I mean, the Bible was never intended to be used as a Beatles record. Where a hippie, he has a hit. And then he plays a Beatles record backwards, listening for, for all these secret subliminal messages in that record. That is not a good way to read the text, people. But rather, God's word is there in order that it might equip us and train us in how to be Christ-like until he returns. That is what is truly important here. Not to major in the minors and to minor in the majors anymore, but to major in the majors. Because here is what, what truly matters one chapter later is Jesus clearly speaks about his return. Matthew chapter 25, he says that that on that day, I I will return in all of my glory and with all of the angelic host. And I will separate people as as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And to some people, I will say, come, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But what Jesus is never going to, to announce to anybody is that You pieced together all of the end time clues. You added this scripture with that scripture, and you you had come up with an end of the world prediction. Congratulations, come on in here. But, But what truly matters on the day of judgment, according to the judge of the living and the dead, is that behold, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and I was naked and I was in prison and sick and and you came and you came as a visitor in my life. Lord, when did we ever see you personally hungry or sick or in prison? And what Jesus says is that every single time you had done that in my life. Every time Mary Ann goes to a halfway house and she drops off food and, and she ministers to a lot of the people there, she is ministering to Jesus Christ Himself in that sense. As Lori came here to the building last Christmas time and she gave what we as a congregation had given to, to a number of, of children at Christmas time, that is something Jesus looks at and He has a tender heart towards. And he says that truly matters right there. Going to the people in society who are the most downtrodden, the most vulnerable, to, to all of these dehumanized people and making them remember that they are a human being. And in ways that, that, of course, points to the grace of Jesus Christ. This is truly, Jesus says, what is going to matter on that day as well as in the world of today. And if there were one last scripture we could look at this morning, in 2 Peter chapter 3 is where I would like to go for, for a moment as we bring this to a close this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3, and starting in verse 9, what the apostle says there is that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Notice what he says in verse 10, though, of 2 Peter 3, where it says, But the day of the Lord, again, notice, the day of the Lord, will come like a thief, in which the heavens are going to pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will, Jesus says, be consumed and burned up. Now notice, as Jesus returns, this is very complete here, isn't it? It tells us that when Jesus has returned, I mean, life as we know it in this world is now all over. All judgments will be final. But again, here is what truly matters, starting in verse 11. Where Then, then what Peter says is, since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, then what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness? Notice what he says in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements are going to melt with intense heat. Most importantly, verses 13 and 14, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, in other words, here is what truly matters. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. In other words, you do not need to waste one moment of your life worrying your heart sick about the end of the world. Amen. You don't have to worry about all of the um, clues and, and, and adding this verse with that verse and saying, well, well, clearly Jesus is going to come back next, next week or next year. But rather, what is being emphasized here in the coming of the Lord is that we are conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. That we're setting our hearts and minds on the things above, rather on the things of men and of this earth. Living in such a way that we want to be better followers of Jesus than we were the day before. You see, the greatest tragedy about believing in something like like the rapture is that to obsessively live for the rapture is to live with excited anticipation for events that will never even occur. That is that the world that you hope to spend a thousand years living in will be engulfed in flames. And even worse, you live in anxious paranoia with energy that desperately needs to be utilized being the light of the world who visits Jesus Christ in the form of the downtrodden. You see, this is what truly matters. And so, what you and I need to do this morning is just very simple, but, but it's something that requires action. And that is live in joyous celebration of His coming. Amen. Love His appearing, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. Live in a joyous celebration of His, of his coming until either we also now have fallen asleep in Jesus. Or we are among those who are alive as he makes his one and final return. And so that is exactly what we need to do. His kingdom has already been established. And guess what? We are that kingdom as his church. It's going to be one very loud and visible return. And Jesus absolutely wants you and I on this earth as long as he wants us here. In order to be the salt and the light of this world. As we close, I'd like to go to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we we confess that there's a lot of mystery about your nature and about when you're going to return. In fact, what, what you've said in Scripture is that, listen, I don't even know. I'm Jesus Christ, and I don't even know when that day will be. The angels have no idea when it's going to be. Only God the Father knows. And so, Father, as... As tempting as it is to to worry ourselves sick about the end of the world, we relinquish all of those, those anxieties in your hands. And all we want to do is to live the Christian life. Please, Holy Spirit, empower us, embolden us, so that we can do just that.